Hello everybody and a warm welcome back to another Motorsport Magazine podcast on rather a grey day in London. But this is not going to be a grey show because we have with us today Gary Anderson. And if you watch BBC television, you will know who he is. And if you know your motor racing history, you will know even more about who he is. For example, the man who created the Jordan 191, surely one of the best looking Formula One cars ever. And I must say, on a personal note, Gary reminds me of my favourite ever school teacher because he was the one man who could explain things to me in such a way that I really understood and enjoyed what I was doing. And I think Gary's done a brilliant job with that uh, this season on the BBC, I must say. So welcome, Gary. Thank you very much, and it's a great honour to be here. Good. Um, Let me tell you about our new subscription offer, first of all, before we get into the show. Um, It says here that it makes a fantastic Christmas present. Well, yeah, I guess it does, actually. I I wouldn't mind having that as my Christmas present. Um, If you subscribe today for 12 or 24 issues, and you save up to 24% on the newsstand price. I'll repeat that. If you subscribe today for 12 or 24 issues of Motorsport, you save up to 24% on the newsstand price, and you will receive an exclusive Motorsport whiskey tumbler, absolutely free. I'm sure they have. Like a whiskey, Gary? No? Okay. A little drop of Irish whiskey little, goes little down well, yes. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, so if you want that whiskey glass and you want that 24%, then uh, uh, what you have to do is visit our website, motorsportmagazine.com. Um, I hate this bit, forward slash XMP13. Uh, that's XMP13. Or call 0207-349-8490. 0207-349-8490. Good. Whiskey not included. Whiskey not included, yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. It's not completely Christmas. <laughs> okay. Um, Nigel, let me start with you today. Um, opposite you, Gary Anderson has a lot of interesting looking charts and graphs and notes and looks like he's about to design a car actually and but he's come up with some interesting little statistics about this business of Vettel being greater than Ascari quotes unquotes um I think that we'll find won't we that over the years it's always been the same there there have often been drivers who've run away with races weekend after weekend after weekend haven't they yeah, they're, they're, you're right. They're always there. Always have been. I mean, I can remember in the '60s, you know, setting off to a Grand Prix. I mean, in those days, most of the '60s for me it was I was just out of school. It was just the British. I started till I started going to the old one abroad. But you know, you pretty well knew before you left home that Jimmy Clark was going to win it uh, because Chapman built quicker cars than anybody else, and Jimmy was patently the best driver. Um, but, you know, it isn't always the case. I, I mean, judging greatness is something, such a sort of subjective thing because there is no doubt whatever that, you know, after Fancho's retirement until his final Goodwood accident, without any question, Sterling Moss was the greatest. And all his peers acknowledged it, but he never won the championship. And actually, you know, for that matter, never won that many races either because he was, you know, there he was driving for a, a small private team. 
you know, Rob Walker rather than, you know, rather than Ferrari or Lotus or whatever. So, as I say, at any given time, it's not necessarily the guy who's doing all the winning who is regarded by his peers as the best. Which, Gary, you're going to prove from these notes in front of you here. Yeah, well, I mean, I haven't been around really since the 60s, but I've been around since the 70s. Uh, and I've always found it's, it's very easy to take a sort of snapshot of time when you're involved and you make up your mind on who's good and who's bad. So what I've tried to do is convert it into numbers because uh, at the end of the day, I think we can look back in time and then try and relate it because things have changed so much. Um, and if you look, I've got a list now, which I've done, which is um, if you've won a Grand Prix since 1950, basically you're on that list. And there's been 91 winners of Grand Prix. Um, this doesn't include, uh, include um, Indy. So it's just a, you know, the, the, the Formula 1 championship as we know it. And what I've done is take the amount of races they've done, um, pole positions, and the percentage, basically, they've been on pole, percentage they've got fastest laps, percentage of race wins, and the percentage of championships that they've competed in. And Fangio is at the top of that list. Um, he's got 52.98%. You add those four percentages together and come up with uh, one number. Um, followed by Alberto Ascari, and followed by Sebastian Vell. Jim Clark's fourth, Michael Schumacher fifth, Ayrton Senna sixth, Jackie Stewart seventh, Alain Prost eighth, Sterling Moss uh, ninth, and Lewis Hamilton tenth. And it's the same sort of you know, set of numbers for everybody. So through the time, I think it's one of the ways that I can look at it and say, you know, are they, am I right about where, where we are? And if you look at sort of people um, in the middle of it all, you've got Felipe Massa and Jensen Button side by side. You'd sort of call them two drivers that are the same type of people, aren't they? Mm. You've got um, Mark Webber, Gerhard Berger sitting beside each other, David Coulthard sitting there as well. Carlos Reutemann, and you'd sort of classify them as the same little group. So, you know, it doesn't sort of work out bad. It's never right. Nothing's ever right. But at the end of the day, it's the only way I can look at the drivers that raced before my time. It's interesting, actually, that, isn't it? The way they group together like that. It's almost like a personality. Yeah, well, that, that's why I've sort of looked at that, and yeah. I've tried to sort of rationalise it and say, is it anywhere near right? Well, you get, you know, Ayrton Senna, Jackie Stewart, Alain Prost... Mm all side beside and then you think well, yeah okay they were you know they were that type of driver they were somebody you'd respected at that point in time so um right or wrong is my set of numbers yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> sounds like quite a good magazine article doesn't it actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so wh where would you where would you put vettel let's just get this out of the way of because you know we've been talking about the guy all year where would I put him? I mean, I think he's a very, very valuable part to Red Bull. Adrian New, without doubt, is, is the star of the, of the decade. Um, well, the last couple of decades, actually. But in reality, it also takes a driver to drive that forward. He's, you know, Sebastian Vettel is part of that team, as is Adrian Newey, and he's, uh, all his merry men that are in Milton Keynes. And I think without Vettel, the team wouldn't be as strong as it wouldn't be as strong without Mark Webber. Now, Vettel can go out there on a, on a Sunday afternoon and keep doing it. You know, you don't want win nine Grand Prix in a row just by accident. Um, his records has to stand for itself. You know, he doesn't make those mistakes. You know, that's the thing that wins nine Grand Prix. The competition is tough. Yes, the Red Bull car gives them that little bit of an advantage. But when, when you look this year, he's had Mercedes as a, a Lewis and at Rosberg as a sort of Saturday problem in qualifying to be honest but he's still gone out there and done the job and um, come Sunday there's nobody drives that first couple of laps like him uh, and you have to have so much confidence to do that you know Mark Webber has scored roughly half the points that Sebastian Vettel scored this, this year in the same car and Mark's no slouch he got the fastest lap in Brazil he was um, finished second in the race in Brazil so you know he's no slouch by any means but Vettel just can do it weekend after weekend after weekend 
And he and he's, he seems impervious to pressure as well. I think back to races like China 2009, when they had that leaking drive shaft gator in qualifying, and you know the, he could only do one lap in any part of the qualifying phases, whereas other drivers could sometimes do two. But each time he went out, the screen went purple, 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 fastest. Purple, and and he just you know things don't phase him. And and that was before he'd won a world title. But the signs have been there from the start. I mean, there there is something about him. I mean, he's got the intellectual capacity as well. I mean, the team say they're sitting on the pit wall sometimes and they won't tell him something because they don't want to distract him. And he'll come back to them, so he'll have seen something on the TV. He'll notice that Mark Webber's on a different coloured sidewall. So, oh, Mark's on the medium. What's, you know, what, what are his lap times like? And, you know, he can, he's still, even seven seasons in, or whatever it is, continues to surprise the team with his... his spare capacity. Yeah, I mean, if you look at that, uh, you look at all the, the radio controversies been this year with Lewis and his engineer, with Kimmy and his engineer, um, and, you know, Sebastian Vettel and Rocky, they just seem to have a chat on a Sunday afternoon. You know, he's, he's sitting in the armchair. Wasn't and quite that in Malaysia, Kerry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, maybe, he, maybe he didn't want that message, though. That, 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 that was Christian Horner and Seb, to be yeah, fair. Yeah. But yeah. No, I mean, I think in Malaysia it was wrong, because it, we heard, we heard um, Ross Braun uh, speaking to, to Nicka Rosberg, and he was very, you know, straight bang, done, end of story, no, no way out of it. Whereas I think who, I think it was Christian Horner speaking to Sebastian, I think it was pretty weak, to be honest. You know, it wasn't sort of like, this is what you're going to do, chap. Now, okay, I've never known, you know, nice guys don't win championships in my book. And um, sometimes that Malaysian win for uh, Sebastian, you know, it could have uh, influenced the championship dramatically if it just accepted second place. But you know, so yeah, you know, the hungry guys go out and, and they they do the job on a Sunday afternoon. And there's no nobody gives anything away for nothing. I mean, I, sorry, you carry. Well, I, I mean, I took his point about um, I was quicker than him and I beat him and I won and all the rest of it. That wasn't the problem for me. The problem was the, this whole thing about multi twenty one. If he wasn't prepared to accept that, he should have made that clear instantly when it was being discussed. He should have said, nope, sorry, I'm not interested in any of that. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going for it, and that's the end of it. The, the duplicitous thing, I felt, was that Mark went into that race believing that Multi-21 meant something, and it didn't. Yeah, uh, that's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I think a set of circumstances has to come up. Before, whenever I was designing cars, building cars, and going racing, we used to always sit down before the beginning of the season, and we prioritise people's home races, for example, you know, if you're a British driver, the British Grand Prix would be your race, and if it's an Italian Grand Prix, the Italian driver would be his. And then you sort of try and work the rest of the season out, so it, it sort of was, you know, you got equal rights, but it was, you know, every other race was, was that driver's priority. So if you had some new parts, um, it would go on that car at that home race. And then mid-season, as the points would unfold, you might change that strategy. But at the end of the day, you know, whenever a racing driver's out there and he sees the red mist, I, I, I don't hold back against anybody who will want to go and win races. I mean, it's, you may have set a circumstance with that multi-21 thing, but at the end of the day, the team needed to be stronger in it as well. The team needed to stand up and be counted, and they were very wishy-washy. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah I, I don't want to take us away from discussion of 2013 particularly, but just going back to your days when you were you know, on the pit wall with Jordan Stewart, etc. I mean, what were the most difficult situations you, you recall having to handle? I mean, I know, I know there were tears occasionally between Irvine and Barrichello at Jordan. I mean, what were, the mo what were the most difficult situations that you came across? Well, it's mainly handling two drivers and making them not hit each other on the track I'm talking about. Red Bull and Turkey, a typical example, you know. Um, and you've got to try and get the two of them to respect each other. Drive hard, but respect each other, because the team's bigger than you. Um, I think in Hungary it was the two of them ran into each other at uh, turn 
two um, on the first lap of the race in 1994. And you know, when they come back, I put them in the back of the truck, closed the door, and told them to sort it out. I didn't want this brewing up and you know being a, a fester that's going to you know go on forever. So at the end of the day, that's the most important thing you've got to sort out. And obviously, if there's something where a driver thinks he's getting uh, shafted by another one, you've got to sort that out as well because that will raise its ugly head at the wrong times. So making the two of them respect each other, not 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 race with each other, but respect each other is very important. Let's look back um, on the 2013 season because that's what we're supposed to be doing and we can dig into things um, when and where we want to. Gary, um, give me your overview of this season just gone by. Um, We've talked a lot about Vettel, obviously, but there's uh, one talking point surely is Ferrari, isn't it? I mean, what on earth is going on there? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult one because Ferrari last year were accepted that they had a a pretty poor car at the beginning of the year and they sort of tidied it up a little bit by I suppose Barcelona the start of the European Championship and it was it was okay it wasn't anything special but then again this year they seemed to start very well but they didn't have to go forward anywhere I, I've got a little graph here which is a comparison between 2012 and 2013 and you know if I read down through the, the 11 teams Mauritia this is based on percentage, so it's basically a one-minute 40 lap. Um, Mercedes went forward by 0.6 of a second. Toro Rosso went forward by 0.3. Red Bull went forward by 0.17. Mauricio went forward by 0.01, nothing really. Ferrari went forward by 0.009, so nothing. Lotus went forward by 0.005. Force India went backwards by 0.22. Um, Sauber went backwards by 0.32. Caterham went backwards by 0.47. McLaren went backwards by 0.1 by 1.1 and Williams went backwards by 1.1 so if you take that as seconds on a 1 minute 40 lap you know you have to go forward now you can say in Red Bull's case they only went forward a little bit but they were quick to begin with Ferrari never went anywhere and they, and they were slow to begin with so that's the thing you've got to do if you, if you know what's going on with the car and you know how to move forward the regulations were relatively stable um, and they weren't able to exploit it so that, that's a, a tricky thing and I don't think they, they come to races with any developments that actually goes forward I watched them back to back and stuff yeah. you know, numerous, numerous times yeah. and all you're doing is not actually having conviction to what you're trying to do Do you think that James Allison will make a big difference? Yes, I mean the Lotus from my point of view was a, was a, was a good package for the last three years um, the forward exhaust system that they had, the blown sort of underflow that they had, was a very, very good idea, but I think it ran out of potential. That was the big thing. And the guys that had what's called the blown diffuser had more potential, and they got left behind mid-season. That's yeah. three years ago. Mm-hmm. But the last two cars have been very, been quick enough cars, and they've looked after the tyres very well. The problem is it just needs that little bit more speed. It needs that two or three tenths yeah, on it yeah. to help them on a Saturday. It's the hard bit, isn't it? That's <laughs> the hard bit. Getting that and keeping the tyres. And, and it, Mercedes are an example. Mercedes had a very quick car that of the year but fell backwards in the race again I do a comparison here on fastest times in, in up to the race starts and fastest times in uh, in the race and Mercedes are the worst they dropped back by 0.75 of a second in relative terms they're the slowest um, in race trim as such for the offset from qualifying to racing and yet they're the fastest whenever it comes to pure speed so that you know setup wise they've got the car in the wrong place they're not looking after points on a Sunday I see on your graph Mauricio actually wins that particular uh, battle and yeah they go forward on, on race day basically they're not getting the best out of the car and qualifying what you want to do is end up in that line if you can or as near that line as possible that means you're getting the best out of the car and there's a good example here you're getting the best out of the car on saturday for qualifying you're getting the best out of the car on sunday if you take red bull they're 0.1 of a second slower um on sunday than they are on saturday but they're quick and they're winning races and they're on pole position 
goes one step down, there's McLaren's, 0.16 of a second slower. They've got, they're getting the best out of the car at the track on a Saturday and a Sunday, but the car's not quick enough. Yeah. So as long as you can be on that line there, your risk team's executing things correctly, but you better you look at where you are as, as far as it's concerned, and then you know what, you need a faster car. Mm. As, as I say, um, Mercedes end up down here, they go 0.75 slower, so, and yet they're fastest there. So they're, they're in the worst sort of scenario. They need to slow the car down to get more points. If only this, if only this was television. I mean, it's fantastic. You should see that. If only you could come in and see all this. It's wonderful. And uh, you know, it's, it's I think it's the first time actually that people have really drilled down into this detail and made it digestible. And Gary's got too much time on his hands. <laughs> <laughs> I wish my wife doesn't say that. I suppose, I mean, looking at the whole season, we have to ponder, of course, also, you know, what a difference it made, the sort of, whatever you want to call it, the change of Pirelli philosophy in the middle of the season. Um, I'm not saying for a second that Vettel wouldn't have won the World Championship, you know, had the tyre situation not changed. But, I mean, it was Mataschitz's angry response that sort of led to suspicions. I mean, the, the problem with, with Red Bull is Mataschitz and Red Bull are known, are so close to Bernie that as soon as they raise their mouths in anger about something, there's a kind of assumption in the paddock that something will be done about it. Um, remember, Mataschitz is angry. Let a, uh, uh, and and it, I'm sure it did. It, it had certainly had a big influence on the way the second, the second half of the season went. But be that as it may, it, it was still ludicrous to my mind that somebody like Adrian Newey, who's designed a car as capable as the Red Bull RB9 was within a set of regulations, that the drivers were unable to exploit oh, that. I, I absolutely agree. Because they couldn't risk exploiting all that downforce because it would shred the tyres, which is what was often the problem in the first seven or eight races or whatever it was. Absolutely. But this is the whole problem with having doctored tyres to start with, isn't it? You know, the very idea of any aspect of a Formula One car not being as good as it could be is, just strikes me as... I know Paul Hempy always makes the point right. that you know, drivers, since time immemorial, have extracted the most from the package at their disposal. But when the most from that package, as in Monaco, was eight tenths off the pace running around at GP two times, then that's, that's not a Formula One package, is it? No, it isn't. I mean, I think there's been more problems than one with the tyres. And if I sort of go back, I, I went to the, the test at the beginning of the year and the tyres looked a bit critical. Um, as far as the compounds were concerned, Barcelona was always an aggressive circuit. But I think what you had to look at was say that the the tyres we had in 2012, the change on them for 2013, as, a, as far as the compound was concerned, they seemed to be a compound softer. They just looked, you know, more used, more graining, more, you know, working harder basically, um, which put themselves in a position where they really had, you know, they'd gone from having four four tyres to having sort of three softer tyres as such. But then you've got the um, the construction change, which went from being a, a Kevlar belt to a steel belt. The reason of having that steel belt on the tyre, and the belt is the bit that's underneath the tread, uh, having that steel belt on the tyre was to keep that tread flatter, so that all the cars, had a, uh, the cars would have a bigger tyre contact patch, and obviously it stayed flatter for longer. So that's the reason why the cars that produced downforce couldn't exploit their, their cars so well, because all the cars were getting a bigger contact patch, they were getting the maximum grip, whereas the year before, the cars with lots of downforce would displace the tyre, and the, as you displace the tyre, the contact patch gets bigger. So cars with lots of downforce would get a bigger reward than they would in 2012. 
And then there's obviously the problem with the, with the glue from the, tre the tire tread itself onto the steel belt, and that was coming undone, was, coming, was overheating basically whenever you had a lock-up or something, so it was throwing the treads off. So the change in the tire really going back to after the August break was basically to go back to the Kevlar construction, but with the 2013 compounds. And we saw that in, in India, a few of the tracks where the, the compounds really looked pretty haggard. I mean, they were tearing themselves off the rims, basically. But it made the reasonable racing. You had to, you had to manage the tyre. It's, it's something that if you have a tyre that will start at the beginning of the race and end at the end of the race, it's, it's a bit of a boring sort of subject, because the guy in pole is going to win it and, unless the thing breaks down. But I think the tyre change did, did help Red Bull, help cars that had higher downforce levels, to, try to make sure that they could use that downforce, and in using that downforce, exploit the tyre contact patch, make it bigger. And also the fact the front tyres, the new construction, um, expand it with speed, which meant that Red Bull could exploit their the rake there on the car, in other words, the low front right height, high rear right height, which is the only team in the pit lane that do it. Mm -hmm. They could exploit that even further because the front tyres changing the size would help them that little bit. But it was a necessary change, wasn't it? I mean, it had to be made after Silverstone. It was a very necessary change, and they could just very simply have gone back and said, right, we'll bring the 2012 tyres, which would have been fine. Um, but unfortunately, it would have done the same thing. You know, the, the tyre construction dictated that in changing it, um, they were going to upset somebody. Mm. But at the beginning of the year, you know, um, whenever the tyres come out, you do your testing, it's the same for everybody. You've you got the tyres and you've got to try and exploit it. So some teams complained because they went backwards, but this has been a tricky year because a lot of teams have stopped working on this year's car or diminished their effort on this year's car because of 2014, so it's a big change. So some of the teams suffered because of that as well, at the same time as the tyre problem arose its ugly head. Uh, it had to be done. It suited some people, it didn't suit others, but at the end of the day, you know, at the beginning of the season, up to, let's say, um, where, it, where was it that we changed that, the Belgian Grand Prix, Red Bull, Sebastian Vettel had still won four races um, in that early part of the season. Alonso with the tyres that suited the Ferrari had only won two. Um, Hamilton had won one, Kimi Räikkönen had won one, and Nico Rosberg had won two. So Vettel had still won more races than anybody else in that early part of the season when the tyres didn't suit their car, so, you know. Well, I don't understand really people complaining about the tyres making the championship. No, I don't, I don't either, because, I mean, much as I thought, because it was Mataschitz making this statement, something would get done, I still think the right thing was done, because if, if Adrian and co. produced the best car, then that should, that should win the championship, end of story. Uh, and to have a car artificially compromised, I think, is, you know, is, a, is a joke. But it, we're back to this whole thing of, you know, is it a sport or is it a show? Gary, we've got to talk about McLaren. Um, can you try and explain to us how things can go that badly wrong in such a well-financed, uh, apparently professional team? I mean, for example, people said to me, hey, Rob, they, they seem to have the best car at the end of 2012, and they're nowhere in 2013. Um, I think you could explain it quite easily, personally. A, a they don't have an Adrian Newey, and, uh, but to explain that a bit more, they don't have a leader of the team. It doesn't have to be Adrian Newey. They have a committee that sort of builds their car, and a committee will never work in this sport. I mean, you know, Formula One's been made by a little bloke called Bernie Eccleston, and the last thing Formula One needs is a committee. Bernie's pulled it all together over many, many years and made it work as one person. And I think that Red Bull, you know, show that at the end of the day, you still got to have one person. A big team of people behind them, very, very intelligent, very clever people. But I classify it a bit like, you know, Adrian will come in and he'll probably put a sketch on a piece of A4 sheet of, of what he thinks the car should maybe look like, and they'll cut it up into jigsaw pieces, and they'll give each one of his lieutenants a jigsaw piece, and they'll go off and optimise those jigsaw pieces. And when it comes back, it fits together, and it all works as one. Whereas 
Ferrari don't or Ferrari or Mercedes or McLaren sorry don't actually draw out that picture they're all off there doing effectively the same job but whenever it comes back it doesn't fit together it doesn't work as one and that's such an important thing you know any car I've ever seen that works well is a, is a unit from the front to the back works well and McLaren I don't think last year they knew why their car was as quick as it was. I don't think this year they know why it's as slow as it was. And that's worrying more than anything else. You can make a mistake on a car, but if, you know, from my point of view, you've got to fix it before the end of the season. To prove to yourself that you can make decisions for next year. I don't think McLaren have done that. Now, if I take their car as a design, and I said it at the beginning of the year, to me, it dots all the, dot all the I's and cross the T's on it. Everything is there as a, as a concept to work very well. There's one area of the front wing in my book, which is four years out of date now, and I don't understand why they don't address it. There is no other top team in the pit lane that's going the route they are with that part of the front wing, um, and it's a very important part. It's part of the front wing that works. Whenever you put steering lock on the car, which is, you know, no driver complains about downforce going down the straight. It's always mid-corner, so that's when you've got steering lock on, and that's when you've got to look at it. And it will have a dramatic effect on the car with steering lock. And they have not, the oldest year, they brought out new front wings, I think there's three of them all together, but they've not addressed this one area that I think will influence the car dramatically, and especially for Jensen Button, because he's a, he's a guy that needs um, consistency and balance, good yeah. feel in the car, and this will be like a light switch going on and off, and it will affect him from, you know, uh, a little bit of one PSI on the tyre pressure, different height, it will affect the front wing, so such small changes, temperature, everything will change, um, and as I was saying to Jensen the other day, I said, look, you know, if you've got something where you've got a little bit of understeer, three or four percent understeer, and you put more steering lock on it, all it will do is give you more. And that's the problem you have, isn't it? And he said, yeah, it is. So at the end of the day, I don't think they've addressed the problem. But um, the simple co response to that is, why not? <laughs> well, it, you, only, you only do what you do. No, no team knows 100% of what makes a car work, um, even Red Bull. You know, so let's say Red Bull know the most and they know 90%. And they'll go off this year and they'll exploit that 90%. They'll try and make it better for next year's car. Or in their development, they'll research that 90%. But if you make a mistake on that 10% and you don't know it yet, the car goes slower. And, th and as I say, going back down the field a bit, McLaren maybe know 70%. So they've got a 30% window they can make a mistake in. So it's how they research the car in the wind tunnel and the CFD. That gives you a set of numbers, and then you have a little box beside it, and you tick it off and say, that's good for the car, and they make it. So they need to, they need to increase their, their research program. You know, they started, if you look after over the last three or four years, they haven't started those seasons very, very good. They've started badly and caught up. This season, is, you know, they have caught up a bit, but they, they started badly this season and they never really got on top of it, to be honest. So their, their research and their you know, boxes of numbers that they look at and tick off to go on the car or not go off the, or not go on the car, they need to review that, how they look at stuff before the, it gets to the circuit. Did it surprise you that having finished 2012 with a very quick car, a very, very competitive car, for the final year of the V8 formula, they sort of went relatively radical, which, you know, with Paul Rod and all the rest of it. I, I just couldn't understand, really, for one, the last year, why they didn't sort of develop, you know, what they finished 2012 with. It would have been a logical thing to do, but I, I do believe that last year, really, Red Bull didn't show ultimately what it could have done early on so the because their exhaust systems didn't work at the beginning of 2012 very well so there was more potential in there Ron Dennis confronted me in 2012 in Australia, they finished first and second and uh, I just did a, a, um, a bit in a magazine about how I didn't think that McLaren was, was up to it and he said oh, look we've just finished first and second I said yeah you did, I said but the only thing is you've just beat the others, you're only as good as the others are, it's not that you're good so uh, we had a little bit of an 
argument about that, but there I, you bet, go. I bet he loved that. Oh, he loved it. Yeah. Um, Did you win? Uh, he didn't say much more actually. I, I think I caught him by surprise that I said something back to him. But um, the, the thing that really, I suppose, from my point of view, if you're going to do something for any year, from 2013, McLaren from 2012 to 2013, you always want to be taking steps forward because you want to make sure that you you can um, exploit the maximum from it and get confidence from that. Because the rule book is the same for everybody. You read the rule book and you exploit it. Um, and and they, they did move forward. And as I say, if I would go through the car in detail, they got some, there's some lovely bits on it. And the concept, the high chassis, the, the way the detail of the underfloor works, um, rear brake ducts, you know, it's all good stuff. It's all really, really good stuff. But as I say, one part, and unfortunately the front wing is the first thing that sees the airflow, and it affects the rest of the car. And that one part, I believe, is playing, you know, it's, it's not doing the job correctly, and it, it does affect the car different from session to session, from race to race, from track to track. And that's not what you want. You know, Red Bull have got a very stable aerodynamic platform. They're able to exploit it in qualifying, able to exploit it in the race. And the thing is, it gives the driver confidence. And then the driver finds you more time, as you know yourself. The driver finds you more time when you give him confidence in most things. Gary, what, what if anything, was the biggest surprise for you in 2013, car, car driver or team? Something that you thought, well, I'd never, you know, I just never thought that I'd see that. Oh, tricky one. I mean, I, I, I think probably the um, Nico Hulkenberg and the Sauber is good. I, I feel that they're the team that showed Williams and McLaren that you can actually get better. Uh, for a small team there, and they're, they're in financial problems, I mean, right, left and centre, but still, they were able to put the sort of racing attitude towards it. And by mid-season, they put a package on the car that, that worked very well. Again, the tyres come in, and maybe they work very well in their car relative to others, but that combination of Sauber fixing their problems, Nico, Nico Hulkenberg doing the job, and, us, and, and then not getting recognised for it. You know, I don't understand why the Ferraris and McLarens and those guys are, are passing them by. Actually, is it not to do with um, height and weight? Well, can you explain all this, actually? Well, oh, the next year, the, 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 the weight limit's going up by 50 kilograms to uh, 690. It's um, 642 at the moment. The problem is um, that Nico is a tall driver, but he's not only tall as Mark Webber. You know, Mark Webber fits in a car. Uh, Nico Hulkenberg should fit in a car. Um, he's a, bit, a little bit heavier because he's, you know, he looks... He looks very fit and skinny, but he's actually got you know some bone mass or something that's a bit heavier than others. And what the, the teams don't, the new engine pack is very heavy. And what the teams don't want is to have a heavy driver. They'll always, through time, they'll always want a small driver. And uh, as Nigel will say, small driver and a light driver because you can put the ballast underneath the car. And um, McLaren sort of refused looking at him even because he's too tall and too heavy, which is really wrong because at the end of the day, you know, I pat these guys in the back like Nico Hulkenberg because he come up through the smaller formulas. He come up through karting. And, and basically your weight's more important then. If you can get through to the top echelons of, of motorsport with a weight problem, then surely to God, Formula One should, should admire that and op open-handed. He's, he's won championships at every single level. Formula BMW, A1 GP, F3, GP2. He won the lot. But, why, but I still don't get it, sorry. Why, why, surely something should be done about the regulations to, so that a tall, heavier driver can race a Grand Prix car? Yes, um, there, is a, there is a regulation in there for the length of the car, basically from the driver's seat back to the front bulkhead of the car is 1.8 metres. It's been put in there actually way back from Gerhard Berger's days. Um, 
but as we know now, it's not long enough. And every year that people have tried to sort of make that a bit longer, make it 1.85 or something, because it's the same for everybody, it doesn't matter. But the, the teams have fought it and said, oh, well, I might not want to make a new chassis for next year. I mean, this is the thing, whenever you have these technical working group meetings, everybody's looking after themselves. I might not want to make a new chassis for next year. Well, next year's regulations mean that everybody is going to make a new chassis for next year. So that should have been identified and fixed. And that no... Nothing against anybody, that could be 1.85. That would cater for the Mark Webbers or David Coulters or Nico Holkenbergs without any problem whatsoever. And also there, there needs to be something in there that's not just a car. There needs to be a driver ballast. And again, I proposed something um, in another magazine by putting a, a, a block of heavy metal in the seat back. And basically you take, say, the second heaviest, dri heaviest driver and then up to a maximum, I think it was 15 kilograms I put there, um, up to a maximum 15 kilograms that gets bolted into the seat back to make all the drivers the same. So you, you've catered for the weight, yeah. you've catered for the size, and it's <coughs> done. And that, and, but instead, they'll put the weight limit up another 10 kilograms to 700, mm -hmm. and the teams will still want to put it down low <laughs> because they've got the same problem, exactly. So why not fix the real problem? But that's what we've got. We've got regulations that have just escalated. I mean, whenever I started doing Formula One, um, designing a car in 1990 for 1991, the regulation, the regulations consisted of an A4, A4 sheets of about less than 20, you know, probably 18 sheets of paper, and now the last count it was 87 sheets of paper, and all it has done is get more and more confusing, and that's why the big teams can win as well because they're more people to read through them and try and find the, the grey areas and solutions, and um, they are in a mess and they need to be rectified pretty soon. And a lot more work for television pundits. A lot more work for television pundits. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there someone out there who could do this? Actually, re, you know, lead lead Formula One technically. Do you think? Um, well, there is supposed to be people out there doing that at the moment, but the problem the problem is, you, you know, you got a situation with the teams and the and the FIA trying to reach that compromise between the two of them. The teams will always have their own vested interests at, at heart. So I think what needs to be done is the regulations as they are now rewritten into some sort of logic and some sort of sense because you get points in it. You know, you get one point, and as long as you comply with, you know. 5.7.6, then you comply with 2.4.3 or whatever it be, you know, it's just things relate to everything else through that book and you have to go back and forward and back and forward and back and forward and most teams, to understand them, would sort of rewrite them and move things around to be all be in the one area. Um, so yeah, there are pe as people out there, I'm sure, that could do it. Um, there's a bloke leaving Mercedes that wouldn't be bad at that job. Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they might need to go fishing and think about it for a while, but at the end of the day, that's, that's where you get the good ideas. But it is it is a mess, and again, next year's regulations, you know, the cars, people are talking about them looking ugly. They're only going to look ugly because they're, they're going to be allowed to look ugly within the regulations, and the, the regulations should semi-control a little bit of that. It's not, not that they've got to do away with the fact of cars looking as the teams want them to, but, you know, you can dot the I's and cross the T's on to say, okay, that wouldn't be too bad if you exploited it. But, uh, so I think, I think thing, decisions are made without enough thought put into it, to be honest. I think a couple of the things that stood out for me this year, the races I attended, one was uh, Roman Grosjean, particularly in Japan. I just thought one year on from the first nutcase incident to drive the race he drove, the start he put in there, and to drive the race he drove there, I thought was absolutely fantastic. And also Fernando Alonso finishing second in the championship and what was effectively the fourth best car, just getting everything he could from it every lap of the season. Yeah, I mean, it's about as... Um 
Fernando Alonso says himself he, he won the non-Red Bull Championship so yeah. I mean, yeah, and you got to pat him on the back for that but I think he did lie down a little bit as well whenever he sort of felt it was all going away from him he, he sort of let it slip on him you know he, he didn't just keep up that real ag- aggressive hunger that he normally has Roman Grosjean fantastic recovery um, and I think since Kimi Raikkonen was going to Ferrari he sort of stepped himself up to say hang on you don't need a, a number one driver here I can do this job and that's, that, that showed me a real maturity within himself as well but I think for me Hulkenberg in, in uh, Korea with Lewis Hamilton, that, that dice they were having there, no, pressure he had. Yeah. I'm, I'm relating this to a small team because all my life's been small team stuff. So I know how, how, how important it is for a small team to have does one Jackie over a big Stewart team. Did Jackie Stewart realise it was a small team? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he does. I mean, that's all right. No, Jackie and I get on well. But, you know, uh, again, it's, it's, it, it, there's nothing more satisfying for a smallish team uh, as getting one over the big boys. And that is great for, uh, for Nick to have that over. just dealt with Lewis so coolly, didn't he? That was the thing. There was no panic, no locking brakes, no, no darting about nothing just say okay I'll get you next you know as soon as we're out of the going on yeah and going back to 2012 and the, and the damp in Brazil with, with Lewis and the McLaren and, and Nico and the Force India I mean fantastic drive so give that guy an opportunity to be up there dicing anybody he shows the maturity that there's not very many drivers have um, Gary we, we've had I think I'm right in saying Ed Foster will tell me but I think it, we've had the most ever number of questions from uh, our readers and listeners so it's a good end to your year, isn't it? I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're delighted about it. Um, so let's go f- through a few of them. And um, he- here's, a, here's one to bowl at you, just to change the subject for a bit. Um, what was it like working with EJ? Um, he still does. Well, he still, still does, do, but yeah. I, th- I think we know. Thank you, Simon. <laughs> the thing is, I don't work for EJ now. We both work for the BBC. <laughs> <coughs> so I tell him that quite often, actually, when he's <laughs> telling me what to do. Um, he's different. I mean, you know, he is, he is what you see on TV, to be honest. Um, things that used to happen, you, would, you just couldn't comprehend at the time, but you look like it now. <laughs> and it was, it was how he operated, you know. I'd be, we'd be, we're sitting here at a desk now, you're having a chat across it, and I'd be sitting there with him at a sponsor meeting, or a driver, meeting a driver trying to convince him to come to join us next year, and he's kicking me underneath the table. And the, the, the one thing I always used to say to him going to meetings is, I only know the truth. I have no idea what lies you've told these people. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but no, he, he, was, he was good. He was a good guy. I enjoyed working with him. I'm, I'm, I really, you know, thank him for the opportunity he gave me because without that, um, I wouldn't have got to where I got to. Um, although he was mad at the time, and I never ever thought the car would run, have four wheels on it or anything. But he did see it through, and to be honest, uh, still a good friend of mine, and uh, somebody I appreciate greatly for, for everything he done for me, and for many, many people that came through Jordan Grand Prix. I mean, you know, we t- call it the Jordan School of Motoring. It was uh, two years ago, I think it was, we had seven, seven top people, either aerodynamically or technical directors, in the, in the 12 F1 teams that were, were all ex-Jordan uh, School of Motoring people. Yeah, yeah, it is, it's, it's a little known fact that actually isn't it it's yeah it's and, and that's important to me because they're all still friends of mine and you know i've sat with many of them and, and sort of they've said oh you know i want your job and so they're like, okay well mm-hmm. if you're going to do my job you need a bit of a wide variety of stuff and we sent them through the factory r&d and data engineering and engineering cars so you know hopefully hopefully some of them are uh, are going to be top guys in the future they're still young um, mm-hmm. relative to uh, to adrian so there's still plenty of time for them to pick it all up but there's, there's some good guys out there that came through jordan's this one comes from Henry Hope Frost, and he simply wants to know why can't all single-seater racing cars look like the 191? I think 
Yeah, it was a good car. It was a nice car, let's put it that. And it was a good car because it was our first, um, and we weren't we weren't clever enough to make it ugly, I suppose. Or, you know, I like simple things. And, and in those days, it was all pencil. We were just getting into the, the CAD system days. Um, and the last thing you want whenever you're doing a pencil is to draw something, you have to keep rubbing out. So uh, my philosophy was to draw it right first time. Uh, and it was, you know, it was a simple car, but I think what you got to say is that Cars soon become pretty if they if they get across the old checkered flag first. <laughs> yes. It never quite made that, but I'm very pleased that it was it was one of the cars that people like, and uh, I'm very proud of it you know, to this day. I was actually interested to see uh, Adrian just last week, sort of saying, in some way, the appearance of a car should be written into the regulations. I don't know how we do it, but cars need to be attractive. A good point, I thought. It does, yeah. I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with uh, a car being attractive. And I, I relate it back to even the mechanics. You know, if you've got a really ugly car, they want to put the cover on it and go home. But if they've got a nice car, they'll polish it again and they might find a body fastener loose or something, you know. So you can make people sort of respect things more. And I agree with Adrian. This is one of the things I'm saying because it's hard to explain really on the radio, but um, basically the chassis is laid out by a bulkhead at the driver's knees and the maximum height of that, at the top of that, is 625 millimetres from the bottom of the car. There's another bulkhead in front of the driver's feet and this year the maximum height of that is 625 millimetres as well. But... Um, They've lowered that front bulkhead now for next year to 525 millimetres, so it goes down 100 millimetres. Then the tip of the nose is lowered dramatically, um, way down, and I think it's wrong in doing this because I remember the time some people used to go underneath each other, especially on the grid if you, if you rush into the back assembly, so that's not a good consequence. But instead of writing the regulations with a sort of middle point between these two bulkheads, between the 525 and the 625, you can come to this 525 bulkhead and you can go up vertically if you want the 625 and then carry on. It's only that front bulkhead has to be at that height. A millimetre behind it, you can just go do a vertical wall if you want to. And because of people with, pull, with uh, pushrod suspension, they want the chassis as high as possible. So that's the one area that might look a bit ugly. So the cars will, will have a droopy snoop. Some teams will just put a nice line on there and it'll stay, it'll be okay, but other teams will try and exploit it and they will get, you know, 0 0.001 more, more percent downforce and teams will go for that because, you know, performance makes a car look good. Martini stripes always help a car along a bit, don't they? Don't you find? Martini always helps a car along a bit, yeah. No, martini stripes always help a car, yeah. No, th th those were the good days as well. As back opposed to Pepsi Cola. Yeah, they were good days way back in the, uh, back in the 70s. Um, Paul Fernley wants to know when during the design process of the 191, and this is the last 191 question, did you become aware that it was such a handsome car? I don't think we ever become aware, to be honest. We, we, we were just so busy getting it together. I mean, there was three of us. There was a guy called Andrew Green, who's now um, technical director at Force India, Mark Smith, who's technical director at Caterham, and, and myself. That was the three that sort of started designing it. Mark looked after the gearbox and in engine installation, um, and we looked after all the suspension, and I looked after the wind tunnel and the, what it looked like. And we got this big layout board in one wall, and um, I just got it fitted up on the wall, and it was, you know, it was my toy, because I could lay the whole car out full scale on there. Um, and Andrew and Mark went off to look at a CAD system one day, and they came back, and there were sort of lines on there that sort of showed a car, and they said, God blame me. That looks really good. So that's where it evolved from, and there was a few changes from that, obviously due to aerodynamic reasons. But the thing that I liked about it was it was a car that was very driver friendly. Um, I met up with John Watson at the British Grand Prix in 1990, and John was typical John. Oh, you know, you guys building a Formula One car, don't be stupid. You know, you can't do that. Formula One is just this big world. 
And uh, I said, well, you know, we're, we're going to try and do it. He said, well, what's, what you, how are you going to do it? What, what do you know about Formula One? I said, well, I'm going to try and build a car that's driver friendly. I want a car that has good stability under brake and aerodynamically. Um, just something that the driver will be you know, comp- confident to, to exploit. And we're going to have to do um, pre-qualifying. So the last thing we might do is go to a track in the middle of nowhere on a dirty track with a car that's complicated. And John was the first guy, luckily, to drive the car at Silverstone. And his first words after two or three laps was, this, he said it's exactly that conversation we had in July. He said the car just feels so good to you. It just, you know, it feels as though it's a glove and it fits and it really does everything you talked about. So that's, I suppose, when we first realised that uh, we had a neat little car. Um, it was driver-friendly. Ultimate pace wasn't there, but that was just because we just didn't have the ultimate downforce. We were doing two days a month in the wind tunnel. Um, uh, two days out of 30 um, and even EJ was trying to cut it down to one because <laughs> budget reasons you know um, and so a hell of a lot less than other people were doing so you know all you, you had to do a little bit of lateral thinking you had to make sure you could uh, think about what you'd done without even doing it um, Ricardo Tercato uh, wants to know would you like to get back to designing a Grand Prix car looking at the rules for next year and what you've seen of the complexities of, of 13 as well. I mean, there is so much going on. Are you a bit frustrated? Uh, no, I'm not frustrated. Um, it's one of those sort of situations, yes, you would love to go back because your, your mind's always racing. If you've ever done it, your mind's racing ahead. Same with you guys, you know, you write stories about stuff and your mind's racing about stories and stuff. Don't design the racing cars the same sort of thing. You live it, you, you, know, you sleep it, you, you have to live it 100% of your life. The problem is really that, and the reason I got out of it was because Formula One was, the teams were becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, and I ended up a paperwork shuffler. You know, I was managing a team of people. And that team of people at the beginning, as I said, were, were three people at Jordan, and we probably got to having 30 people in the drawing office. Um, and at the end of the day, all you do is sit there and shuffle paper around the desk. I was, I consider I was good at, at designing and researching racing cars, and I hated moving paperwork around the desk. So, the job, unfortunately, that's the way it went, and it's it's sad, really, because I, I look at different people in different different places. Adrian knew he is able to do what he does because he still gets his big layout board on the wall. He goes home at night at, and after a race, and he'll draw bits and pieces, um, and he has a team of people to do that other stuff. Many, many other people um, would want to change it. Many, many other teams would want to change Adrian Newey into the the man who manages it all, and he'd become a bad manager and a poor racing car designer because he was doing a job he didn't want to do and that was the same for me so if the opportunity arose now for me to get my hands dirty which is what I enjoy um, with a team that, that needed a bit of a fight to get back up again I, I would be willing to, to do something but no it's not something on my agenda at my age now you've got to live sort of 24 hours a day but uh, the system has sort of moved on from wh- how I work but you still get—I mean, you still get your hands dirty from time to time. But the kind of this year or last, didn't you go over to Brazil to help Luciano Berti out with his stock car? Oh, I did lots of stuff. I mean, I, I still get my hands dirty. I'm still—I'm designing the Mario Andretti 1982 um, Alfa Romeo F1 car at the minute. Uh, a guy's bought a couple of them, and, and it, they came in a skip basically. And my brother-in-law—he he rebuilds these things, so a lot of it's missing. So I've got a bunch of pictures and stuff, and I'm trying to draw up all the bits. We've—we've we've done a, a lot of 72, brought it from the grave. So I do that. You know, it's, it's interesting stuff. Um, but you know, you're talking about Formula One is a thing that you get, 
it's completely different mental health because you get judged every every week or two weeks basically as to whether you're moving forward or not so you know it's not as though you're you're making a washing machine that you're going to see in three years time and everybody will stand back and say we've got 10 million of these or whatever it be made they've got to sell you know formula one is is the cliff face of, of judgment of uh, of success and uh, you'll never replace that adrenaline rush but, but, but how is your relationship in the brazilian stock car championship uh it's quite or good your I, reputation, I, I, should say. I haven't been out there since i started working uh, doing what i'm doing now because just too much traveling but i do uh the internet is such a deal that you can actually get setup sheets and that back and forward quite often and i still do that with luciana so it's it's a great formula it's a great formula lots of good racing and i bet the same person doesn't win nine in a row no they don't win nine in a row but you know the the thing is with all these other formulas i think you'll find that they they try and pull that back you know formula one is let win nine in a row there is nothing pulling it back there's nothing regrouping it at all at any point in time so it is the successful car and the successful driver that will win uh, you know until they trip up and as Sebastian Vettel himself said in the radio the last couple of times, you know, there is no guarantee that next year they're going to be to be doing it again. So I'd love to sometime, one of the things I was going to write, Michael Schumacher was winning everything, was a, a winter book on the on the thoughts of Michael Schumacher or the thoughts of a somebody who's just won a world championship. And, you know, as the, as the weeks and months go past during the winter, do you start to doubt it, think about it? You know, yeah, the yeah. pressure for next year's coming, last year's gone. Yeah. It must be quite interesting inside that head, having that confidence to come back and pick it all back up again and go and... Vettel, I think, uh, as well as Michael Schumacher, but Vettel's shown that, that to win four championships in a row, mm. you know, both constructors and drivers, you've got to have such a focus. And I think it comes back every year stronger, and I don't know how he does that. Before the year started, when I was previewing the season with, with Anthony Davidson, and I said he was going to win the championship, and he instantly said, oh, Vettel, it's the last year of, the champ of these rules. They haven't changed the rules very much. He's still got a blown uh, floor. And he can... A, their blown floor works much better than anybody else's, and B, it's completely counterintuitive to get the best out of it, and he can do that better than Mark. Yeah, I, I think that's completely right. And he made the point that, in fact, at the beginning of last year, remember when their floor wasn't working, Mark was the first three races of the year, Mark out-qualified Seb. It is true. I mean, you know, there's things, and you can relate it back to whenever we had um, um, electronic traction control. You know, dr there's drivers that could drive with it, and there's drivers that couldn't. And, you know, the thing was, if you were a sort of hardened professional driver, you'd still try to control the traction with the throttle pedal. And all that did was confuse the electronics. Whereas the young guy, or the not inexperienced by any means, but the, the guys that had confidence in them just plop the throttle to the floor and believe that it would work. And it, and it would. 99.99% of the time it would work. Now, I always try and go out on the track a little bit, and um, the last track I was out on a corner that's critical it was in Korea, the, the corner at the end of the main, of the pit straight. And there you see Vettel through there. He's on the throttle three car lengths earlier than anybody else. And he's, he goes up three gears before Mark Webber goes up one because he's got too much torque at the rear axle. So he just has to go up the gears and cut the revs. But he keeps the throttle open, keeps the exhaust work and keeps the traction in the rear of the car. And that is the feeling that he has. And as you say, going back to the end of 2012, the exhaust system didn't work. Um, but I think you can look at that two ways. You can say Mark was driving the car to suit a normal car without that exhaust system. Unfortunately, Mark still is driving the car to suit a car that hasn't got that. Whereas Sebastian, Sebastian Vettel knew and believed that it had to be fixed and was on the way to trying to fix that with Adrian to make it work right. And then whenever it does come, he exploits the benefits of it. So I think when you're talking about Anthony at the beginning of the year, I mean, that you can go out on the track and you can see that, that if, if he can get the tools um, to do the job, it's fantastic with the way he drives the car, and it, you know, it gives you another tool in your toolbox on a Sunday afternoon as well. 
Okay, um, let's just have a couple more questions from our from our listeners. Um, and uh, this one comes from David Knowles. It's um, something that I think interests a lot of people in modern Formula One is how big a role does the driver still play in the development of a Formula One car? I mean, we've, you've talked about Vettel's close relationship with Adrian Newey, but can a driver still make a difference before the race and as well as during the race? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing about a driver is it's, it's him that's driving the car. There is one lone element in there that can do the job, and that is the driver. And to give him confidence in the car means that you have to um, you have to work with him very closely. You know, whenever we look at all this data that's gathered, that's gathered, sorry, um, basically all that data means that the, the engineers can look at it and they can make sure that the car is in its correct working window. In other words, the right height of the car is right and the centre of pressure is correct and where they think it should be. Um, and then if the driver doesn't like that, what the team has to do is go off back to, to develop the car and find why that doesn't work on the track um, and the driver wants something different. You know, So the data is only good about making sure your, that your product is, the base is right really, and your product is what you understand from the wind tunnel and CFD, but then the driver has to take it from there. And, that, and it's the team that will listen to the driver as opposed to telling the driver, well, look, it is okay, the right hatch are right here. And the guy would be saying, well, it doesn't feel right because, you know, blah, blah, blah. So uh, to me, the driver has a major important role in still in making it right. Do you think this will be even more important next year when the cars are more complicated? There are lots of things that can could go wrong, aren't there? Um, I've got a feeling in my water that next year will like to be easier for the driver because... You, you, the minute you have a, a torque curve that comes from a, um, a naturally aspirated engine, you know, um, and there, it's never a smooth torque curve. And what you do is you can smooth that out a bit. You take the peaks off it a bit to try and make that smooth. Now, whenever you talk about a throttle pedal, it's not a throttle pedal in a Formula One car anymore. It's a torque pedal. So basically, when the driver applies the throttle pedal, the torque pedal, he wants more torque. When he lifts it, he wants less torque. But because the torque curve from a, a normal engine is a bit uneven, it's not always sort of the same consistency. Yep. Next year you've got a lot of electrical power, so instead of taking the tops of these bits of torque curve, you'll be able to patch it in using electrical power. So you will be able to make it a lot smoother. Now there will be more torque available, but that's, there's always too much torque available in a Formula 1 car. If you nail, nail the throttle, you spin the wheels. And that's all torque. So you'll have to have better, you'll have to have uh, refined throttle pedal control because there's more torque uh, available but the torque curve will be smoother so you'll be able to know that if I go 10% more here that gives me X percentage of the rear wheels whereas so now yeah. the next 10% is different from the last 10% mm. So smoothness will be Yeah, and, and then driving the car because of these fuel flow and fuel um, capacity rules 100 kilograms maximum fuel used during the race and 100 kilograms of fuel flow at any point in time, um, the 100 kilograms maximum fuel for the race will be a little bit tricky. You'll have to, as a driver, you'll have to drive consistently to be able to get a fuel consumption that you can relate all the way through the race for the X laps. And you'll have to lift maybe that fraction early, but it's only about driver driving consistently. And I think from what I hear about the radio language between driver and engineer, Sebastian Vettel is more open to accepting what he's being told than many, many other drivers. Mm, mm. Especially Kimi Raikkonen. Especially Kimmy or Lewis in the last while. Lewis upset yeah. me a little bit because, you know, Peter Bonington, the engineer, Lewis, he's an ex-Jordan School of Motoring guy. <laughs> and he's a good little guy. You know, he's totally committed and he's you yeah, know, a nice sure. bloke and all that stuff. And he knows, he's, he knows what he's on about. Um, so sometimes you need to sort of uh, 
accept that um, the engineer is going to have to talk to you and you know maybe not in the right place all that sort of stuff but you're a big big professional racing driver who's earning lots of money and the, the engineer is only trying to help you to do the job that you're supposed to be doing um, for, for just to wrap up the 2013 review, um, we haven't talked about the, the teams that are perennially at the back, um, you know, Marussia, Caterham, and sa sadly Williams, actually. Um, how can these teams survive, Gary, the, the increasing costs, complexities and demands of, of, of the way this sport is now? I have no idea. I mean, taking the two at the back, the Marussia and Caterham, to be honest, to begin with, um, you know, we had our bad times at Jordan as well, and you know, you'd be at the back, but you had a f you had a fighting chance, and if you kept fighting, you you sort of get yourself there somehow. <coughs> I don't I don't see how I don't see the fight. I see them showing up on a Sunday or a Saturday, whatever you like to call it, and yeah, and that's it. And it's 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 it is so far so far away. I mean, we, if you look down my 2013 season performance, you get to Williams, and Williams are like on average over the 19 races we've had so far, Williams are the the ninth team at basically two seconds off the pace of Red Bull. Um, but then the next car, Caterham, is 3.9 seconds off the pace, and Mauricio are 4.1, so there's a, they're just fighting their own little battle. The rest, yeah, they go down in a, in a sort of tier. Um, but at the end of the day, the chance of them competing against the other teams, that's a huge step to take. Now, you know, two seconds to improve for next year relative to your other teams. Yes, uh, what you're saying is, I mean, that, you know, they're as far from Williams as Williams are from Red Bull, which is... Startling. Exactly, and you know they they need to get knocking on the door because then if you start to put pressure on some of these teams, you, you know you'll end up they'll make a few more mistakes and maybe you can mingle with them. But being a team that that has been at the back, as I say, I could never have done it if I didn't have any room for a fight. Now, part of that I think is next year will be more complicated from a team point of view. It, it, the car next year will be a nightmare, and the development rate next year will be huge because at least this, with these regulations they've been stable for a while so everybody was honing in on some direction and their development direction was sort of set you might have brought new parts but you weren't way out wacky stuff um, next year there's going to be things up here at the first test that aren't going to be there at the second test that aren't going to be there at the third test that aren't going to be there at the first race and that, you know, if we're complaining about spending too much money now I think next year is going to be an absolute nightmare The other thing about the, uh, the two newest teams is that I mean, I remember standing in the Marussia garage at... Um, or Virgin Garage as it was then Bahrain in 2010 and people would, you know, John Booth was down on his hands and knees with a hacksaw helping them, you know, fit, fit the HRT was the same in the neighbouring garage but since those days they haven't really taken a big step forward, I mean they, there's been an incremental improvement it's, it's tiny though, over four seasons Yeah, that, that's really what I'm saying you know, as I say, if whenever we had a bad year as a small team we would always look at having the fight for next year and learning more about it and stuff but these regulations have stayed stable and you know if you walk up and down the pit lane as I do with my BBC job you see lots of stuff but yeah, I go out in the circuit I watch around corners and see cars there and I, I get my stopwatch out even still in time sections of the track and look at why and whatever I never see anybody out there looking I never see anybody walking up down the pit lane really having a close look or looking at the development direction. It's not that you can just take a bit of a red bull and stick it on your Mauritia, but it gives you a development direction. It gives you a, a, a way to think, you know, they're doing that for a reason. Now how, how come we can't show it as a benefit? What, what, makes that, what makes it worse in our car and it's better in their car? So it gives you a, a direction. 
You know, it's like saying I want salt or sugar in my coffee. You know, he's putting sugar in it, and he likes it. Well, why should I put salt in it? But they just keep putting salt in it and trying to make it sweet. So at the end of the day, you know, you have to open your eyes to these things. You're not big enough to do it all yourself. So you do have to have an open eye to, to how people are doing things. And as I say, you can't just take a bit of one car and put it on another because it's the complete car works as a unit. But it can give you a direction, and it can give you an inspiration sometimes. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm a writer, not a technician, but I mean, I stand track. So in 2010, it was very obvious that the Marussia and Cater and the HRT had absolutely no front end on them. And you stand trackside in 2013, and they've still got no front end on them. The things just will not hit an apex, or well, eventually gets there just about, but you know, they, they still look the same to the naked eye as they did then, just, you know, what miles off. Well, I mean, that is the thing about lap time. You know, when you can, as I say, when you can turn the car in and the front end works and the rear end's secure, then you go faster. And if you're just waiting on the front end of the car, you, it will go in there, but then the stopwatch tells you the lap time's not there. And it, it needs to be looked at very closely. I'm not, you know, I, I think, I always blame the regulations. From my point of view, I think that when you read the regulations as a small team and you build the car to set those regulations, you get a Mauritius or a Caterham whenever you're a bigger team, the more you can read them, the more you can see those grey areas, the more you can exploit them, the more the more sort of muscle you have to actually exploit them, then you end up being a Red Bull or, you know, as Mercedes or Ferrari or whatever. So the regulations, I think, need to be redone to suit the fact that they are black and white and they will be, um, you know, addressed with FIA as being black and white. We go back to 2009 when the, when the double diffuser thing came out. Um, three teams found that solution, Braun found the best solution, mm -hmm. but to be honest that should have been banned from, from, day, from day one or even you know, from race three or four whatever it was, but instead everybody had to do it, they, they ran it for that year, then they had a new version for the year after and then it was put in the bin you know, that is just a waste of money isn't it? Three teams might have suffered the consequences of, of having developed it but it's better three suffering those financial consequences than, than the twelve suffering the financial consequences. Some logic has to come into these things. I mean, going way back with a fan car, the Brabham fan car and 78, whatever it was, 77, 78, 78, you know, it did its one race, well done, pat on the back, put it in the bin. And that's what you have to have that strength right now to sort of control these costs, because otherwise, if that fan car had been allowed, I was working at McLaren at the time, we had solutions to that that would have oh, just sucked the tarmac off the road. Maybe, maybe, but it would have cost a hell of a lot of money on the way. Well, like a, sh like a Chaparral Formula One car, isn't it? Well, yeah, no, but, you know, if one's good enough, then two's better, and so on it goes, doesn't it? And it's the same same with the Lotus 78, 79 thing, you know, they had a good, nice little ground effect car there, straight skirts, and then they wind the skirt around inside the rear wheels, and, and then it doesn't work, because you, you always want more, you always try to get more, but then suddenly it doesn't work, so... Did, did the twin fan McLaren have a type number? Oh, uh, no, that was, that was, this was just... Dustbin lids. <laughs> we were running around the factory with bus dustbin lids, and two dustbin lids fit in between the rear wheels, so we thought we could put two fans there. Gary, um, we haven't given you a chance to get into these fantastic looking colourful charts here, and I'm, I'm just wondering what they are out of interest. Well, there's lots of them. Basically, what I look at is, um, is again, the fastest lap that a driver does over a given weekend. It's not always in qualifying. Um, so you look at sort of the drivers, basically, if you take that, that as a as a scenario, um, if I can find the right one. You know, Sebastian Vettel, let me just see, hang on. Yep, here we go. F so over uh, over the race weekend, not not counting not counting the race, just in, in practice or qualifying, and Sebastian Vettel comes up tops with, um, it basically it's 0.2 of a second. Again, in that 100 second lap or 1 minute 40 lap, it's 0.2 of a second off being perfect. Mm -hmm. In other words, if he'd been fast as in every race weekend, 
he would have uh, been 100% there, but instead he's 100.202. Um, and then it goes, you know, Lewis Hamilton second at 0.39. Uh, Nico Rosberg again 0.42. Now, if you look at that in Mercedes, you know they, they let a lot slip away because they had yeah. two very good drivers in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Webber comes in fourth um, at 0.59. So, you know, I just look at that as as far as driver com- competitiveness is concerned. And then you look at the race as well. Then you compare it on that other chart I've got. Uh, also, I've got a one which is just the teams, and it's every four races. So you see who makes you know who makes moves forward, developments basically. At the beginning of the race, over the f- the first four races and the second four races, uh, Mercedes were without doubt the quickest car, and then Red Bull just nicked it in the way they went, and they kept it for the rest of the season. So, you've got to keep your development up. You can you can look at how Sauber came up through the field. They started off the season eighth as far as in the first four races of the season. They were eighth eighth quickest car. This has taken the fastest time done by either of their two drivers each weekend. So Sauber were eighth fastest car, and they end up the last. Uh, the last stint of the season, the last three races as it was, uh, fourth quickest car. So, you know, they come up through the field quite nicely. McLaren, again, come up a little bit, but more or less stood still. Force India went backwards a bit. Gary, so while we're on that, how did Ferrari do, given that they started well and, and did not finish well? How did they? Yeah, Ferrari, and over the first four races of the season, Ferrari were fourth, um, 0.36 of a second off Mercedes, which actually had the... F- the um, they were a hundred point one two. So Mercedes over four races were point one two away from being perfect, and Ferrari were point five three away from being perfect. At the end of the season, um, Red Bull were point zero one away from being perfect for the last three races, so almost perfect, and Ferrari were one point one eight. So just went back. See, this basically. is fascinating, isn't it? So they went from fourth, no, fourth in the first four races, as far as positions concerned, to third in the next four races, to third in the next four races, to fourth, and then to sixth in the last three races. So yeah, drop, dropped off, and say all these numbers are um, yeah. available if any magazine wants to have a look at them, print anything. Uh, well yes, I think this magazine, I'd quite like to have a look at them. Were, were you thinking of the other magazine? at the t- oh, I'm sure we can arrange something for <laughs> two well, magazines to do something. The editor is sitting on your left, so I'll shut up. Oh, no, it, it, as I say, it's, it's so hard whenever you sort of, somebody asks you something and you can't go back and look at it. Yeah. Um, I think that at the end of the day, you know, you, you just have to sort of put, put something in numbers so I can go back through the season and say, well, compare that to compare that. I mean, if you take the last three races and you take the... Uh, Again, the, the points scored by the team. Um, Red Bull would have won the championship with 780, 788 points to Mercedes' 298 points. So they were so strong in the last bit of the season, you know, all the way through, they were always leading the championship, um, whether it was tyres, whether it was not tyres, but they've always had a good hand on the championship. But those last three, four, five races or whatever they were, were really the strong ones, you know, and they... they um, I don't know how many one-twos they scored this year, but you know they're the only team I think to do a one-two, uh, one, two, three, four of them. So they, you know to get two cars first and second on the Formula One grid is phenomenal. Um, so they were the only team to to do that this year, and it's it's something that's what you work for. You know that's what you work for as a team because that's the satisfaction of first and second on the grid, fastest lap, and uh, first and second in the race, and you can go home pretty happy. I'll say. <laughs> um, we're running out of time, sadly, uh, very sadly, actually, because it's it's fascinating. And of course, the great thing about about the Anderson charts, the Anderson files, is that uh, they're facts. <laughs> they're not journalists speculating or people wandering up and down the pit lane having an argument. These are facts, right? Um, 
Gary, I want to finish on one more uh, listener's question, because otherwise there's no point um, in them sending us the questions. And uh, this chap's called Scooby-Doo, which, well, I mean, obviously he's not, but anyway. Um, and he's saying, is it possible to design regulations so that one team can't gain such a huge advantage? I imagine the answer to that is, is no. <laughs> um, the answer is no, yes, basically. But I, I believe if I was in charge of the regulations right now and somebody was saying to me, okay, for next year, 2015, <coughs> go flat out, and, and do what you can to try to make the sport um, tighter. You'll cheaper never as well? Cheaper and, and, and tighter. Um, so the championship tighter. You'll never stop the good guy from winning, to be honest, but yeah. you might have to think more about it in a way. And my way would be, uh, immediately, would be get rid of a big, big percentage of the downforce of cars I've got, which you'd have to look at 50% at least, which can be done in the regulations, can be written. You know, everybody talks about aerodynamics and it, it just seems as though it's been found yesterday, but actually aerodynamics have always been here. We just understand more and more about it all the time. So get rid of a massive amount of downforce and put tyres back in the car. The tyres mean that all the cars get the same development. So if you if you take 20% of, of uh, downforce away and put 20% more tyre on the car, you end up basically, the car will go quicker around slow corners, it'll go slower around fast corners. It's safer, um, it'll cost less and you know Pirelli might have to have a bigger truck because the tyres will be bigger but at the end of the day you know the small teams will get that same development that comes out comes out of another truck makes so makes sense. that would be very logical for me uh, and I would the updates that I would allow would only be allowed every so many races be it four races every five races or whatever you're allowed to change certain parts in the car uh, aerodynamic parts maybe three times a year or something. yeah you go to Australia for the first race of the season there's X parts on the car that get stamped and basically you have to have that same specification for the next four or five races or whatever it is. And then you can change them if you want to, but that's your choice. And it gives you more time to, to uh, research them. But from my point of view, as I say, you get, I've, I'm tired of hearing all this stuff about I can't pass another car. Um, you know, it's um, and traffic, turbulence, blah, blah, blah. Get rid of a lot of that. You'll still have a problem, but it won't be as big a problem. And if you have the tyres, you'll, you'll have the same grip as somebody else and I know Nigel you're a fan of DRS but <laughs> from my <laughs> sorry bring up but from my point of view I think it's a stupid thing because at the end of the day it's an artificial overtaking manoeuvre but what it does also do is mean that real good hard racing drivers wait for the DRS they don't have to pull off overtaking manoeuvre somewhere else and when you give somebody that chance to sort of stand back and wait for it and just let it happen, to me that's, that's degrading what this should be about. Yeah, it's like going back to the refueling days, back to the sort of, you know... Sorry, we've got to finish it there. Waiting for the stops. <laughs> waiting for the stops. That's what it used to be at one time. No, I'm not going to pass him because he's going in two laps. I don't think there's anyone around this table who likes DRS, is there? No. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Negative. I mean, going, going, I mean, just... It was quite illuminating. I, at the end of October, I went back-to-back uh, -back weekends, went to the Formula Ford Festival, which has gone back to Kent Formula Ford for the first time in many years, and then to the Walter Hayes Trophy. And I'd forgotten what it's like to see an eight or nine car lead train and the aero having absolutely no effect at all, people being able to run a millimetre apart through corners, ducking and diving, lots of passing. It's fantastic. Yeah, like motor I know, I, know, I know Formula One can't do that, but it's still a wonderful spectacle. No, can I just come back a little bit on some of talk about cost and, and, um, and expenditure and looking at the DRS. For next year's regulations for 2014, basically, um, You've, they've done away with the, the beam wing at the bottom on the car, which is the lower, the lower sort of wing, which helps the diffuser work. Doing away with that beam wing means that the, the, the wings have all got to be pylon mounted in the middle. That means every team's got to have to do a new wing. I mean, these teams, let's say, they'll have 10 different specification rear wings for the car. So they've got to do all new wings for next year's car because of this, this 
mount, the central pillar mount as such. Also, they made the DRS now instead of opening up to 50 millimetres, they made it open up to 65 because they thought next year's engine would have a bit less power and they want a, a bigger reduction in drag. That means the teams will all have to create a new family of wing because you know it's yeah. a different. It's different from opening up to 50 mil to open up to 65. It's a different sort of wing profile you'll be using. And also for the higher down four seconds circuits, they've made the, the rear wing 20 millimetres smaller. In other words, the bottom of it comes up 20 millimetres. But that's only for Monaco, Hungary, few circuits where you'd use maximum downforce. So they've inflicted on the teams a massive cost for absolutely nothing. Now, again, in my infinite logic, if you didn't want this beam wing down the bottom because it's quite draggy, you would have used on the front wing in the middle section, you've got an FIA defined aerodynamic section to allow airflow to get to the bottom of underneath the car to try and help in traffic. You'd have used that on the on the beam wing at the back, had to sit in a certain position, certain angle. So that would have given you the same end plate mounted thing and forgot all the rest. The cost would have been nothing, you know, relative to this. Now the cost for these wings, because each team has, as I say, ten different sort of wing profiles, and you go to a race meeting with probably six of each of them. So there's sixty wings. Never mind the design time, the research time, the tooling, the manufacturing. Like the there's probably sixty wings that those teams have got, and they're in a big skip out the back now. You know, yeah, it's just uh, that's sad. I think that's really sad. It's it's actually almost criminal, actually. I mean, well, we're, I, we're, I, I mean, we're, when we're all being asked yeah. to, to to turn our lights off, and yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, tighten your belt a bit, and, and that's the sort of stuff that happens. And I, I I just do not understand it at all because it will it, it fails into insignificance as far as the the viewer, spectator, the, 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 the enthusiast. It doesn't really matter at all. Nothing whatsoever, except for it's going to cost the teams a huge, huge amount of money. Bonkers. Well, I hope very much that the, that the BBC will find the money for you to do a one-hour show at the beginning of the season, Gary, telling all of us who love motor racing exactly what we're looking at when, we, when the season gets underway, because I think people would really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, but I'm not in charge of the BBC, obviously. Um, thank God. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you very, very much. That was, that was fascinating. Uh, I look back, um, our motorsport magazine, look back on the 2013 season and, uh, and a look ahead to 2014. And perhaps we should just uh, go quickly around the table, see if we can get any predictions for 2014. I know, I know Nigel's not mad about predictions, but give us one anyway. Uh, well, I think it'll be nice, apart from anything else, to see uh, cars overtaking each other in a straight line. You know, I, I mean, the, air, the emphasis has been on aerodynamics for so long and so overwhelmingly. I think it'd be nice to see one car actually more powerful than the other and, uh, you know, a different form of overtaking, if you like. Um, bef before, presumably, in the end, they'll, they'll find somewhere to freeze the engine specs after a time. But for a, for a while, it's just going to be sort of every man for himself. Good one, Simon. I'm fascinated by the how the engines are going to pan out because Renault generally doesn't do bad engines and has got. I mean, the, given Viry Chatillon's competence in the matter of turbochargers and so on, I'd be fascinated to see what they come up with. Bricks with Mercedes, they've got some good people. A lot of the Mexicos with people. I can't see them getting it wrong. Ferrari on current form, I've no idea. And then, and then Honda, of course, in the longer term. But I'm, I'm just be interested to see how. Yeah, the, the engine, because the, we've had this engine freeze for several seasons, and there's been so, you know, small detail differences here and there between the engine, uh, engine performance. But just with a completely, I'd, I'd be fascinated to see how that's all going to. But with a clean sheet of paper, Adrian Newey at the helm, I still think Red Bull's going to have the best car. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I do too. But just to chip in one last thing, I mean, all I would say is that historically, when engine rules change, Ferrari have a, you know. 
if you look back over time, Ferrari have, have got it right far more than they've got it wrong. So, Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. And my other prediction would be that um, I think Mercedes will, me- will regret massively losing Ross Braun, who, you know, the last time we had a big rule, rule change, who, which team was it that uh, got the jump on the rest with a double diffuser? And, you know, he's political, he knows how to play the game. He's a, a brilliant technical mind and they will miss him. Yeah, from my point of view, I mean, you never want to get Edwin Newey scratching his head. I mean, the reason he hasn't got any hairs is because he's been scratching so much. <laughs> um, so I think Red Bull will do a good job. Although, you know, I must admit that Mercedes are feeling fairly cock hook with it all. They, they think they've, they've moved forward dramatically as far as the car is concerned. Engine-wise, it's, it's a big gamble, I think. There's a, if you get it right, you get it right big time. If you get it wrong, I think you'll find uh, um, problems that really will cost a huge amount of money and it's mainly this electric motor that can go on the turbo to regenerate some energy whoever gets that right will actually gain a, lo- a lot um, and the problem with Ferrari they're heading into um, they're heading into an era where they've never really been involved in hybrid stuff now Fiat obviously is close to them and all that I'm sure there is plenty of technology there but it's a, it is a new deal for them whereas Mercedes and Renault have got a lot of background so if I was going anyway I'd pick Red Bull as a team I'd pick a Mercedes engine if I had my list of bits I could put together in my jigsaw um, and those two and Sebastian Vettel driving it I don't think you'd be too far away Is this your ultimate team is it? It's a Red that Bull w- Merc That would be my ultimate yep. team a Red Bull Merc at the minute knowing what little bit I do know Have you still got a full head of hair because you haven't been scratching your head enough? <laughs> yeah it's grown again since the mid 2000s <laughs> I, I, I can't wait to hear these turbos as well there's, there's, there's spinning at 125,000 RPM Yeah cool. uh, you know it's going to be a bit of a whine I think the, uh, the 15,000 engine RPM, obviously the turbo on the exhaust gas acts like a bit of a silencer and you are going to hold that back because you know, normally a turbo works um, spinning up the turbine then you get the other side of the turbine gives you pressure for the inlet system so you pressurise the engine um, the fuel flow, then the 100 kilograms fuel flow maximum is what will control that turbo pressure and then normally on a normal engine as we know it now, they have a waste gate which blows off well that there isn't going to be a whiskey on these engines as such. There won't be a whiskey used. What you'll do is that electric motor will put back pressure on the exhaust gas to hold the turbo at a certain speed, and that will be creating electrical energy. So it's a, it's a great thing because not only will you be creating boost pressure, turbo pressure for the inlet system, but you'll also be creating electrical um, electrical power instead of just wasting it. Um, and that will act like a, bit, a bit like a silencer on the exhaust gases. And then I think on top of that, you'll hear the whine of the the whine of the turbo. Um, any noise is energy, so you want to minimise that. It'll just be like listening to Lewis Hamilton on the radio, won't it? <laughs> Any noise is energy. Yeah, that's right, actually. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, we really are going to have to uh, close the show, otherwise it'll be, we'll still be sitting here in the dark, which would be fun, but I'm sure uh, we've all got other things we want to do, including Gary. So let me just remind you um, of our subscription offer very quickly, OK? Uh, you get a free whiskey glass, by the way, when you subscribe and you get 24% off the newsstand price. So a whiskey glass and save 24%. I mean, why wouldn't you do it? Uh, we'll be back, won't we, Ed, before, before the end of the year. We'll be back with a fantastic podcast. I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'm not going to give it away right now, but um, it is going to be uh, a real good one. So thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Thanks for joining us. We need you, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Eu não posso, 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 eu não